As we prepare to hear the message, let's say together a prayer as we read from the word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Acts 1, verses 1 to 11, NIV version. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have already heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love it when our students read scripture for us. Do you find yourself wanting something new this morning? You know, like during the holidays or celebrations when we get a new toy, a gadget, or my personal favorite, a new pair of socks. But not that kind of new. That's not really what I'm referring to this morning, but do you feel yourself longing for something new? A new rhythm, a new schedule, maybe even just a new update on the news. Mikhail and I were scheduling a fire with some friends this past weekend, and they asked me what my schedule was, and I kind of chuckled. And I responded with, well, I'm free till September. <laughs> How about that? I think many of us have felt these feelings during this season. In a season of way too many pivots, reschedulings, and adapting, do you find yourself exhausted, just longing for something new? One of the things I really appreciate about our Skyview community is our use of the Christian calendar. If you've been paying attention, you'll know that today kind of marks an important pivot. As we've been reflecting on the season of Advent all the way through Easter, it tells this story of Jesus all the way from his anticipation to his resurrection. And today, we watch Jesus ascend into heaven. And as the story of the first half of the year tells us of the story of Christ, this kind of pivotal Sunday, often referred to as Ascension Sunday, pivots the story to respond to that reality of Jesus and asks what now is the response of the church. The second half of the year, beginning with Pentecost and moving through common time, invites churches and faith communities all around the world to ask this question. How is Christ made real in our day-to-day -day lives, in our communities. 
See, a few important things to note is that by no means do we deny this question other points in the year, but simply acknowledge that there's an important intentionality to this annual structure. This movement between Jesus and the church back and forth, ebbing and flowing year after year, asking us to invite what God has to offer to not simply be some sort of spiritual reality, but something embodied, something made real, something that takes root in the day-to-day realities of our world. So today, as we begin the story of Acts, kind of serves as an interesting fulcrum for these two movements And if you study the Gospels at all, you'll know that the author who authored Luke, who's named after himself, also authored the book of Acts. Most scholars treat these books as two of the same, two parts to the same story. And this matters for a variety of reasons, but for our purposes today, we want to focus on one particular point. And it's the story of Christ's ascension. It's kind of odd and interesting story that doesn't always make sense to our rational minds, but a story that the author Luke uses in two very different ways. See, at the end of Luke, chapter 24, he uses this story as an end, a climactic finish, a moment of celebration. In Luke 24, verse 50, he says, while he was blessing them, talking about Jesus, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And the disciples worshiped and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. And the story ends. What a finish. How do do you even top that? I don't know where to even go from a story like that, but Luke somehow does it as he writes the book of Acts. But instead of moving beyond this story, he brings it back to our memories. And instead of using it as a celebratory ending, he uses it to set the tone for what the beginning of this story will be. The story of Acts, often referred to as the story of the church, helps us to answer this question. Who is the church to be and how is it to live? This story holds three main components for us this morning that I would like to pull out. As we approach Pentecost, the indwelling of the Spirit, we might ask this morning, who are we, the Skyview community, to be, and how are we to live, especially in times such as these? I would suggest today that while the work of the church is incredibly important, of equal importance would be the way in which that work is done. And today I'd like us to explore how we might better do three things. See, I've got a three-point sermon for you this morning, just following along the trend. (laughs) I don't know if that's the one thing I get an amen for. That feels a little odd, but that's okay. Maybe you would say amen if it's like a three-minute sermon. Maybe that, but today I'd like to explore three points. How we might better learn to wait, to witness, and to look. So first, let's look at waiting. Who enjoys waiting? I can't see you behind the camera, but I'm guaranteeing nobody's raising their hand right now. I don't think I've met a single person who enjoys long waits. Do we go to the airport and hope for delays? Well, I don't know. Maybe like any airport time would be good right now just to be able to travel somewhere. But I don't go and say, man, I hope my flight's delayed. I hope I get to sleep on the floor tonight in the airport. How could our day be made better if our Amazon package was delayed even further? 
The story begins by telling of Jesus walking with his disciples. He spends 40 days with them, a significant number in scripture, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom which describes an alternative reality that God envisions for the world. You see, in the face of the Roman Empire, a place that was taking advantage of the poor, Jesus prays that God's kingdom would meet earth and usher in a new age where resources would not be sparse and relationships would not be strained. One author describes the kingdom as this, a place where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. It sounds pretty great. And if I was one of the disciples, I would be ready to go to get to work and to get the job done as fast as possible. But I learned something once when I got to coordinate a mission trip at one of my previous churches where I had the pleasure of serving. We had an amazing opportunity to go to Guatemala for a week with our denomination. Maybe some of you have been on one of these Encuentro trips before. And we had an incredible group ranging from 12 years old all the way to 65. And while maybe getting to the airport was one of the most stressful times of my life, trying to coordinate 20 people all to get through security at the same time. When we got on the plane and I looked around, I was overjoyed by the group that we had compiled. As some of you might know, Encuentro structures their weeks intentionally with a short worship gathering each morning for all the teams before they head out to their work sites for the day. And while many of us enjoyed this structure, there were definitely those who did not. I heard phrases like, let's get to work. What's taking so long? Why don't we just get on and go? This frustration of not doing culminated in a select few members of my group that will remain nameless, maybe my father-in-law included, getting a group of our team together and coordinating their own transportation to the work site each morning so they could get to work faster. And there I am as the team coordinator just kind of shrugging and thinking, okay, they have their own agendas at this week. And there was something to be learned about that structure. And, and while I validate the heart behind those people that transpor transported themselves to the work site, because they were ready to do something, they had come ready to work, to do the work that they felt like God was calling them to do that week. There was something important about this structure that even I didn't fail, to, that even I failed to see in the moment. It was in the waiting. While frustrating for those of us who value productivity, sought to teach us something. It sought to show us that on a trip that felt like it was about doing things, it was maybe more so about learning that the way we did those things mattered. So Jesus, right before this moment of doing, tells them to wait. I found an author that said this. It's a rather long quote, but I want to read it because um, I think it's valuable for us today. They say, waiting a heavy burden for us computerized and technically impatient moderns who live in an age of instant everything is one of the toughest tasks for the church. Our waiting implies that the things which need doing in the world are beyond our own ability to accomplish them solely on our efforts, our programs, or crusades. Some other empowerment is needed, and therefore the church waits and praise. 
Our waiting and praying also indicates that the gift of the Spirit is never an assured possession of the church, but instead is a gift, a gift which must be constantly sought anew in prayer. Maybe the life to which we are called will continue to defy our expectations, so therefore we as the church are called to wait. Waiting teaches us to pause, to breathe, to receive seemingly foreign concepts better. The apostles were told to wait on the coming of the Spirit. I think that we would gain more courage to do the work that we were called, more peace amidst uncertainty if we learned to wait. In the business of life, in all there is to do, all the things that we feel we must accomplish, especially when it comes to the church, we desperately need to learn to be still. Amidst all the striving, there must be a time to receive. So do you long for something new this morning? Wait. Now let us look to witness. Then the disciples and Jesus all came together and they asked Jesus this question that was surely on all of their minds. Is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? <laughs> what a question. And while the expectation of the early church that some held that they would see Christ again in their lifetime, while it faded eventually, this question showcases something going on in the disciples' mind and their understanding of who the church was to be. And I think it's easy for us to look at this question and acknowledge that maybe it missed the point, but it's an important indicator of what Luke is doing in these two books. Ernest Caseman, a German theologian, once said that this question explains the whole message of Luke and Acts. And the disciples' question rests at the heart of what God is trying to do. But I think it's fun that we can look, you know, it's funny we can look at questions like this and laugh and even critique. I ran across a funny quotation from Martin Luther who was once asked a similar question like this. He was once asked... What do you think God was doing before the creation? Luther paused and responded, well, God was sharpening sticks so that he could poke people like you for asking such senseless questions. <laughs> but I think while this question might be easy for us to poke at and laugh at and say the disciples just don't ever understand, this question is at the heart of this book and really could be phrased like this. When will the kingdom come? And how might it arrive? Luke would suggest that it would come through the work of the church. And while it might be easy for us to critique, I think we should pause and ponder what this question shows us about the disciples. They understood that they were going to be the beginnings of the new church. However, when they watched their Messiah be dragged away and crucified, surely their hopes were shattered. But then he rose from the dead. And with celebration, they thought this Messiah is capable of anything. So whatever work is to be done, I want him on my team. And I share this sentiment with the disciples. The work to which we are called often feels overwhelming. Too big, too grand, too much for us to be a part of. And so as we watch Jesus ascend in this story, we think, what are we to do? 
We can't. We can't do what you have called us to, Jesus. But Jesus replies to them with two things. First, it's not for you to know. But second, and maybe more importantly, you will receive power from the Spirit. They are assured that with the promise that they will not be left in vain, without the support that they need to do the work to which they are called. We thank the Lord for that, that while the work might seem heavy, the burden might seem overwhelming, we are not left in vain. And while the work could be used, could be described in many words, this particular passage uses this word to describe it. Jesus says that they are to witness. Pastor Stu mentioned a couple weeks ago that since I finished my master's, I have to up my preaching game. So I added a Greek word for us this morning into my sermon. So hopefully I looked it up in my own dictionary all by myself. (laughs) Scripture uses this word witness to talk about the work to which the disciples are called. What's fascinating about this word is that it describes something far beyond simply testifying to something. But the Greek word, watch for it, martis, is used in both the context of witness, but also the context of martyr. See, this type of witness to which they are called goes far beyond simply testifying to something. But it is also a testimony for which we will suffer a testimony that might cost us something. A testimony that will surely invite us to give up our own wants, needs, desires, and expectations. Much like the Jewish community who was conscious of their chosenness. One author said they waited for their special honor and privilege, even for worldwide domination. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, Perhaps in our own evangelical tradition, we can fall into this temptation as well. We seek to witness. We seek to share the testimony of Christ in the world, but maybe with an underlying desire to control the world around us. I think this sort of witness to which Jesus calls his earliest disciples is not a posture of control, but a posture of self-sacrifice One that gives up our own expectations about the way we think the world should look. It requires us to lay down our arms, our arguments. Can I say our judgmental Facebook comments, our backhanded gossip. And witness to the world of a Christ who suffered and died on a cross for all people. Regardless of where they came from or what they might believe. But church, let me be honest with you, this sort of witness is hard for me. It's counterintuitive. It's backwards to what the world tells me about success and power. A world that tells me that control should be my first objective, that power and privilege are the secrets to success, and success is the secret to happiness. But what history can teach us is that those who seek power often do it at the expense of others. The ladder to the top of society is lined with nothing short of the heads of others. And pursuit of this path only leaves those behind us broken and bruised from our own feet. So Christ tells them, both through this statement and through his whole life, that the way to new life, 
The way to resurrected life, the way to the kingdom is not through power and control, but through suffering for the sake of others. We find this in many of the gospels some scholars refer to as the messianic secret. This kind of odd point in many of the stories where Jesus does something miraculous, but then tells the onlookers not to go tell anybody. And while we read those stories and we kind of chuckle because most of the people go off and tell somebody, we maybe ponder and wonder why Jesus asked them not to tell. Surely it's not because he didn't want them to know of these great things, but many scholars, and I would agree with them, suggest that Jesus was telling them this, that while his miracles were wondrous, the works that Jesus did were incredible and would have caused excitement in the community, as it did those that heard would still not truly understand him based on the work alone. That it was not until his suffering and death on the cross that people would begin to understand who Christ really was to be. Notice back in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, before Jesus shows many proofs to the disciples, the author indicates that he suffered. Almost as a reminder to us as readers that before you get so focused on the work that Jesus does, remember why Jesus does that work and how he does it. I'm convinced that I was telling Sam this morning, we were laughing together, that uh, most people in their 20s make this phone call at some point. The phone call to your parents when you begin to realize the ways that you were just a terrible child growing up. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's made that phone call, but I remember it very distinctively when I was 21 years old and I moved out into my first house outside of university. I began to pay rent and pay bills and do dishes and laundry all in a, in a more autonomous way than I was used to and something clicked in me. And I picked up the phone and I called my mom and I said these words, I am sorry. <laughs> what we learned at this age is the way that our parents often suffered for us, maybe even sometimes because of us. And while we know them growing up, I knew my parents, I knew who they were, I knew their names, their lives, their stories. I think this realization that they suffered for us, that we might have a better childhood, seems to reveal our parents to us in a way that we could have never seen before. And I think so too is with Christ. That we may know Jesus, we may know who he is, what he does, what he says, but if we don't truly understand the suffering that Jesus endured, I don't think that we will understand why Jesus does the things he does. And in turn, how we are to do the things to which we are called. So this is the point of Jesus' use of the word witness. If the world is to know who this Jesus is and what sort of kingdom he envisions for the world, they will not see it outside the lens of suffering and self-sacrifice. Now, church, I want to ask us this morning... If we were to ask our neighbors to describe Jesus to us, simply based on the church's behavior during this season, what would they say? I think we would get some honest answers. I think the church demands a witness, but it demands a witness that is not done through our own desire to control or to supersede others, but demands a witness that invites us to lay down our own desires, lay down our own needs. And as we long for something new to acknowledge that there are others 
who long for it just the same. So church, do you long for something new this morning? Then seek to witness for the sake of others. Now finally, I think we need to learn to look. Jesus goes leaving the disciples and the disciples are left looking up. And as I read through this story and we were reflecting in our staff meeting this week, I thought of the many emotions that they would have felt. Among them, fear, doubt, uncertainty. All of these things entered into their minds as this new season said to them, we don't know what tomorrow might look like as they watched their Messiah ascend, disappear, leave from them in a moment where they were sure what the day was going to look like. They were sure that if they were going to do the work of the church, Jesus was going to be right by their side. They had it all planned out, but now they're left feeling more doubtful than ever. Maybe we can relate to feelings like that. Maybe they felt in this moment that God was absent or that God had abandoned them, that they were on their own. Have you felt any of those things during this season? Have you felt that God was absent, that God had abandoned you, or that you were on your own? I think the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 shows us that God may have gone up, but God has not gone away. And I think we need to hear that this morning, or I know I do, that while God may have gone up, God has not gone away. And while I think there have been many great losses in this season, jobs, celebrations, loved ones, all of these things we have lost, I think one of the great losses for the church in this season has been the loss of the faith that God has never left our side, nor will forsake us. And so church, I think there is an, an invitation to re-acknowledge this reality to re-acknowledge that while we might feel alone, while we might feel unsure or uncertain, surely like the disciples in that moment, that God has not left our sides. This story tells us that suddenly two men in white robes stood beside them. And while scripture uses the word suddenly, I kind of wondered as I was reading how long they were there before the disciples noticed them. Perhaps their eyes were so fixated on what they had lost that they couldn't perceive what God was offering them. And I know for myself, sometimes I get so focused on the things that I have lost that I can't begin to see the newness that God might want to offer. And while there's much to unpack with this statement, it seems clear that gazing into heaven, longing for things to go back to the way that they were, is the incorrect posture for the disciples. Why do you stand there and look to heaven, they ask. For there is work to be done, but work that requires a shift in perspective. Work that requires a look, not at heaven, but a look at the world. See, there's this in-between time in which the church lives. In between the resurrection and the final coming of the kingdom. And in the meantime, there is important work for the church to do. 
Let the church be about the work in the meantime. Secure in the promise that Jesus, who so dramatically was taken from his disciples, would return in the same way. But we need to affirm this, that this work is not a work that earns us something. I think we're all really familiar with work that earns us things. When you get your pay stub at the end of two weeks, you know that you have worked to earn something. But the work to which God calls us is very different. Because you know that God has already made up God's mind about you. And the news is really good. God has already decided that you are valuable before the work was even done. But the work that is done because of the resurrection life that Jesus offers us demands witness. It is a new reality that should inspire us so much so that nothing short of witnessing to the kingdom will satisfy. So these men tell the disciples to look around. Sometimes in our efforts to get the job done, you know, like me, we can take pride in our own ability to show up first or to leave last, to set up more tables than everybody else, to get more things accomplished on a list, that we learn to value ourselves, take pride in our work in these moments. But this work also requires us to have faith that God was there long before us, that God was already moving, that God was already pointing people towards an alternative reality, one where nothing was missing and nothing was broken. God was already working towards the kingdom coming on earth just as it is in heaven. But in order to see it, might we take our eyes off heaven. Take our eyes off the things that we want back. Take our eyes off the things that we have lost and turn our perspective towards the things that are coming. New creation This renewed world that God wants to establish is on the way, but I don't think we'll see it if we don't learn to lower our gaze. These two men say to the disciples, he will come in the same way. I think we're bound to believe that the world is going somewhere. But where we believe the world is going might vary. I know for me growing up, this always meant that I was to be ready Maybe some of you felt these sentiments. I went to bed each and every night wondering if that would be the night that Christ returned. I religiously read my Bible each night before bed, hoping that it would be enough to pass the test if Christ was to return. If I was honest with you, the nights that I didn't read my Bible, I tossed and I turned, terrified that I would somehow miss the mark that Christ might return and I would miss out on what God was doing. Because all I was doing was trying to be ready. But what we learn from this is that the kingdom coming is not simply something that we are ready for. Because those that are simply ready in times of discomfort and uncertainty will lead first by petitioning God to come fix it all. But I think if this season of the church is to offer us anything, it is this. We need people that aren't just ready. We need people who strive for the kingdom. We need people that in times of discomfort and uncertainty look for the ways that we might listen to what God is doing. We need people to listen to the cries of the oppressed 
the cries of those hurting around us, the voice of the voiceless. And some might be in our church community today, those that have fallen sick, those that have lost, but others might be in our neighborhoods around us. If you've felt isolated during the season, think about the neighbors who might live alone to strive for the kingdom. Not simply being ready, but to strive for the kingdom means to take our eyes off the sky and stop asking when will Christ come back and fix it all, but instead pursuing a life that portrays what God has wanted to do since the beginning of time. Do you long for something new during this season, church? Learn to look around for what God is already doing. God may have gone up, but I assure you, God has not gone away. Church, we need a Pentecost. We need it desperately. We need the Spirit. Nothing else will do. In a season that has exhausted every bit of our ability, creativity, and stamina, let us not forget who we were called to be. The call to be the church has not been put on pause. And while the work might look different, rather than gathering in person, maybe it takes the form of phone calls to our neighbors who live alone. Instead of big potlucks, it might take the form of prayer for our enemies. Instead of meeting weekly for youth group, it might take the form of a renewed daily practice of reading and praying. Whatever the work might look like, it is all done in the efforts to point people towards the alternative reality we call the kingdom, a place where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Church, do you long for something new today? Would we learn to wait, to witness, and to look that we might better understand who God has called us to be from the very beginning. So church, as we leave from this space today, whether here in this building or on our couches, on our back porches, would we pray for an indwelling of the Spirit, a new Pentecost that is on the cusp of arrival and invites us to open our arms and say, God, do something new. Church, we miss you. I say that and it feels odd because I don't even know some of you, but I miss you because I know that this is a place called the church. Not this building, but this community is a place that desires to faithfully follow what God has for us. So as we continue to navigate through uncertain times, times where we don't know what tomorrow will look like, would we ask that the Spirit would come afresh on all of us? So would you go in his grace and peace and feel the Spirit fresh and anew in your life today? Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, church.